This is the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pierno. All right, welcome back to another episode of the strategy inside everything. We are going to talk film and we're going to talk film criticism and we're going to talk about what you need to know when you're watching a film and how much it is, should be expected on the part of the audience. Um, today, my guest is the critic, lecturer, and author, and former season ticket holder for the Toronto Raptors in Toronto, Adam Naiman. Thank you for joining us. He is also the author of several books. His newest is David Fincher, Mind Games. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm only no longer a season ticket holder because since winning a title, it's not affordable to oh, pay to you know, Raptor, Raptor games in person, but I'm still watching us, uh, watching watching every night from my couch. You're still a loyal fan, at least. I, I, absolutely. We talked before the show about you uh, you and the Phoenix Suns. So, you know, if you have any local listenership, I think you guys are buckling in for a long, a long, a long, a long playoff run, I hope. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. They were close last year. Um, you know, I have been uh, reading your writing on films for some time and uh, I had heard you on a podcast we were just talking about talking about a specific movie and about cult movies and I was curious about how the type of background work you do translates to other kind of thought work you know as someone's doing research on a project as someone's putting together a, a competitive intelligence what all do you need to know um, before we drive into that, I thought maybe you could give a background on kind of how you got to where you are and just how many movies you watch in a given week. <laughs> I mean, I'm uh, I'm in my early 40s and I've been freelancing and writing about films in various capacities since the turn of the millennium for about 20 years. Right. And that's all interwoven around partially comes out of doing an undergraduate degree in film studies at U of T, but also I was writing professionally in between going back to get an MA, uh, that all winds around doing teaching, not PhD teaching. It's, it's adjunct instruction, but it's been very consistent both at U of T and Ryerson where there isn't a formal research component to my work and it's not tenure track. But then I'm also, and I say this with respect on the off chance, anyone from U of T or Ryerson listening, I'm publishing way more than tenured profs are there because I'm writing full books on, on cinema. And there are books that have a research component, a theory component, an academic component, while also being evaluative criticism, and to some extent, journalistic criticism with, a, with an interview component. These are a lot of different disciplines and skill sets. And, and in film studies, academically, there's a certain bristling tension between, you know, theory and evaluation, between academia and, and journalism, and trying to navigate in between all these different things is not just something I, I try and do. Uh, it's just what I've done now for, 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 for a long time. Hopefully, you know, the Jack of all trades, master of none analogy doesn't apply. And it's not like, you know, <laughs> mediocre academia and mediocre writing, but what it, what, what, but one of the reasons I was so interested to come on this podcast and to talk to you is because criticism writing about film, writing historically, writing analytically, writing theoretically, writing evaluatively has so much to do with habits of viewing and frames of reference and a really nebulous set of qualifications that can simultaneously seem really obvious and, and, and really rigid. And on the other hand, are so wildly subjective uh, that they frustrate people. And, well, and I, I tend to be split between people who tell me that they wish they had a job like mine and people who think that there shouldn't be a job like mine. And uh, usually with about the same level of, uh, of vigor. Well, I think that, man, that's, that's a hard thing to hear. There shouldn't be a job like, like the one you're doing. You know, I think part of the reason that criticism is still so valuable is because we do need that frame. We do need more context for criticism is unfortunately for, you know, had been boiled down to what can fit in 280 characters. And oftentimes it's just, Hey, that sucks. Yeah. But, but true criticism is the analysis and how something fits into a broader picture or pastiche of, of where this thing fits into culture in general. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a quote from the film critic Manny Farber, and this tends to be thrown around a lot, and I'm throwing it now, right? And it, it, it should say that it's a bit divested of its context. It's not meant to be the culmination of an argument, but, you know, Farber, it's just part of a larger argument. Farber said, you know, in film criticism, evaluation is what he's interested in the least. And taste is what he's interested in the least. You know, he care less, many Farber, great film critic, whether someone likes or doesn't like a movie. There's also a school of film criticism, though, post that, where the liking or not liking of the movie isn't a point that's arrived at or isn't something that's implicit in the analysis of form and theme and, and content. Uh, you know, it's all people kind of want to hear. That's the algorithmic form of criticism where you go to an aggregator and see X percentage of people liked it or gave it this out of 100. I mean, even the math of Siskel and Ebert was part of that, this idea of kind of thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah, it's really and, simplifying. Well, it was simplifying, but also, you know, there's different different readerships and, and, and viewerships and constituencies who are going to hew more to one than the other. I mean, I have learned in my life, I'm a fairly well-socialized, uh, normal uh you know, person, I managed to secure myself, you know, like a life partner and I have children, like I'm a functioning person. I've also still learned that sometimes at a party when someone's like, you know, what do you think of a movie? And you start going into an exegesis about, you know, social realism or something. People are like, I don't care. You know, is it good? Right. And you wonder, you know, who does the fault lay with there? And it's not a question of fault. It's a question of what does someone want to hear? Are they prepared to meet you where, with the, you know, the way that you talk about movies. I mean, this is going to seem like a bit of a, of a digression. Here I am imposing a frame of reference on your show. But there's a film that came out uh, in late 2020. I don't know if you saw it called, uh, I'm thinking of Ending Things. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, I watched it and I watched it. A, I had to watch it a few times to, I think right. I know where you're going with this. It's like, what, so what do I need to know? Do I have to read this book? Well, we, well, so that actually, actually is funny because I wasn't even going to say that. I wasn't going to say, you know, have you read the the, the Ian Reid novel? It's that in I'm Thinking of Anything, which is, a for your listeners, it's a essentially seems to be about a long car drive in the snow between this kind of shy young man and this girl who he's dating. And it's very odd to figure out whose point of view it's from. It, is it this about a woman who's being dragged along to meet this guy's weird family? Or is this about a guy who's finally bringing up the nerve to bring a a girlfriend home and they're talking in the car. There's a long passage where she starts talking about uh, a film by John Cassavetes called A Woman Under the Influence. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing. You wouldn't know that she's talking about that film if you didn't know the film and didn't know that Gina Rollins is the star because she's making reference to Gina Rollins by her surname. What you also wouldn't know is that she is directly quoting word for word Pauline Kael's review of that film. <laughs> She is reading about four paragraphs of Kale's review of that film, and she's doing it, Jessie Buckley, a brilliant actress, Australian actress. She's doing it in imitation of Pauline Kale. And there's a throwaway shot in that movie, maybe two seconds long, where you see that uh, the, 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 the Jesse Plemons character has a copy of Kale's book for keeps on his childhood yeah. bookshelf. And that's because when the film shows its cards, this female character and all the other characters are are shades and facets of his personality. Now, that's not in the source novel. I'm friends with the author of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Ian Rhee, also a Raptors fan and an Ontarian. That's all Charlie Kaufman putting in this weird digression about film criticism, this weird impersonation of Pauline Kael. He's doing it, I think, because he has a real issue with Kael's way of analyzing a woman under the influence, which is a film about mental illness, as is I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Right. And I've even gotten to my point. My point being that every <laughs> layer there, every layer, I've read the source novel, which still did not prepare me for the digression. I've read the Kale review, which is, I mean, a super small percentage of people that's going to immediately recognize that. She never says, hey, I, 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 here's what Pauline Kale thinks of a woman under the influence. She's just saying it like it's her thoughts. And here's my point. I put this in my piece on the film because I wrote about I'm thinking of anything. More than anything, it's like, boy, does film criticism sound dumb when read aloud. People don't talk about movies that way. Right. People and, and it's jarring in the film. And and although I didn't know all that you just said, to me, I was just a just a viewer. Yeah. I thought, this is weird. 
dialogue. Like the rest of this is very, uh, you know, interpersonal couple in a car. She's going to break up with him. Where is this going? And, 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 and so all of a sudden the scene plays about the scene plays four or five different ways, not because of the choices that are being made, you know, even by the, the actors and the director, the scene plays four or five different ways to four or five different people with four or five different levels of relationship to that text. Because the other level on top of all this is that uh, the novel Kaufman wrote, not Ian Reid, that Kaufman wrote, Ant Kind, which has nothing to do with that thinking about things, but came out at the same time, is a novel about a film critic. Oh. And has endless references in it to Kale and other film critics for 700 pages. And you can see Kaufman, who's gotten his share of great reviews and bad reviews, clearly has film criticism and analysis and the thought process of film writing on the brain where he's inhabiting this miserable caricature of a film critic who is based, by the way, on Richard Brody of The New Yorker, right. who hates Kaufman's work really petty, vindictive thing that he's doing with this Brody-ish, you know, film critic. Now, does this make me a better viewer of this movie? I mean, no, but it's a kind of an ideal viewer of the movie because if the stuff's there, I'm there to pick up on it. Well, and, none of, and none of that's, I'll finish my thought, none of that means that some hypothetical person I meet at a party, they say, oh, I'm thinking of anything is on Netflix. If I start telling them everything I just said to you out loud and I'm not a podcast guest, yeah. Or it's not my byline in a room. <laughs> Unless they're a person exactly like me who knows this already, they're going to talk to somebody else. But then if they say, oh, I thought it was bad and boring and I don't get it. I have learned now into my 40s to think that that's fine and live and let live. But I'll tell you something else. They're not right. They're entitled to an opinion that is absolutely valid and totally uninteresting. Yeah. A totally uninteresting, valid opinion of uh, that, that was boring. They're just talking about nothing. Well, they're not. Do you think you enjoyed that? So I had none of that context. Yeah, yeah do, sure. Do you think you enjoyed that film more than I did? See, this is a good, it's a good question. I, 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 I don't think so. And I also, and one of the reasons that in this hypothetical experiment, I just sounded kind of mean where I said their opinion is, is, is uninteresting. No, I knew what you meant. I knew is, what you meant. It's a rabbit hole. Well, it, it's a rabbit hole, but it's also like, uh, uh, there's a difference between an aggressive denial that these things have context and like a curiosity or at least an acknowledgement that there is that, even yeah. if it's not something that's immediately apparent to somebody or, or if they don't care. So I don't think I enjoyed it more than you. I think that in writing about it, you know, my job is to meet it at the level that I don't want to say the level that it's at. I want to meet it at the level that I'm at. And that might prove to be a bit of a I don't know, a bit of a guide or, or, or a bit of a spur of curiosity to a certain reader, an equally valid criticism of that movie, much more interesting to me than someone saying, I don't care, would be someone saying something like, and this is because I just write in film criticism in my head now, the way some people think in numbers. If someone yeah. were to say, you know, this is an insular narcissistic movie that speaks to an insular narcissistic community and you don't have to get the references to know that it's dropping them. And a, dropping of a reference isn't the same thing as relating to anything like experience or emotion in this movie blows. And if someone <laughs> said that in a review, uh, you know, probably pretty decent little capsule and, and also not inaccurate either as opinion or, or, or as evaluation. Yeah. And I'm trying not to just uh, geek out and talk film with you because uh, I want to, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. I want to move along this idea. Do you get assignments for what you write about, or you do kind of have oh, free range to, to write about what you well, what's so interesting some, to you. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes. Uh, well, I've had I've written in so many different contexts for so many different publications for so long. I use the analogy of the trench, where what I write about is narrow, but it's unbelievably deep. Yeah. Right. You know, and sometimes you're writing the shallow yeah. level of the trench, and sometimes you're writing way down at the bottom, and 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 you know, sometimes you're in your own trench. I mean. You know, the most notable thing I ever did in terms of carving out a reputation for myself was writing a book on showgirls, because now anytime anything ever happens with showgirls or Paul Verhoeven or like nudity on film or anytime a really terrible movie gets made, there's some editor somewhere who's like, you, what do you think of this? 
You're the yeah. idiot who wrote a book on showgirls. Give you're, me, the, you're the authority on that weird. Oh, he's the authority on something unbelievably stupid. Although, again, showgirls is brilliant. Yeah, but, Verhoeven's got merit. He, he did yes, some really interesting my, things. He's my guy. He's the greatest, Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, sometimes assignments are self-selecting. Sometimes you suggest something and people say no. Sometimes, you know, you are assigned to write on stuff. I mean, the original role that I had, which has now largely vanished and a lot of people have very nostalgic feelings about it was I was a, a stringer for an all weekly in print, which basically meant I wasn't the staff critic, but anything that the staff critic didn't want to do or that fell beyond their purview or you didn't have uh, you know enough time to cover it. You know, I'd get sent to all the horror movies. I'd get sent to all the family movies. I'd cover documentary festivals. And then when I showed that I was good at that, I would start putting in requests every couple of months. This is back in the days where like, you know, movies actually opened and played theatrically. And then it wasn't either a $200 million movie or nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the so binary you, that we have now. Yeah. You start carving out a certain taste and both for my home publication, I weekly in Toronto and then for other places who read my work and liked it. And, you know, then it starts getting interesting. Then you're like, well, you know, I, I would like to write on this, you know, curious to me retrospective at, at Cinematheque Ontario, or, you know, I really do like Will Ferrell and I want to review his new movie and try and say something, you know, funny about it or, or whatever else. And so then it doesn't just become about selecting assignments. Sometimes assignments kind of select you because you're notable for writing about a particular kind of movie. But I mean, I think I have way less need now, both financially or just in terms of how releases work. I'm very rarely told by anybody, this is playing, go write about it. You know, it, it doesn't work that way anymore. So you don't get hardly ever get those assignments. Well, I mean, sometimes if there's just, yeah, I, I want to work. So, you know, it depends. But I don't even, I don't think that I'm a straight reviewer anymore. Because the thing with The Ringer, which I, I'll sing their praises for employing me the way they do, because I'm not a staff writer there. I'm a freelancer. I'm not in New York or LA. I'm in Toronto. I have very loyal editors there. They've never really hired a full time film critic since I started, but I'm not a staffer, right? I mean, on the one hand, people are like, oh, it must be boring to review, say, the new Batman movie, which I'm about to write about. Yeah, but I mean, I'm writing like 18, 1900 words on it. And so that's not really a straight review. Right. You have, room, to, I'm you have to, room to explore. Yeah. And I'm about to make a comparison that is meant to be ridiculous. But it's like, that is the amount that Pauline Kael used to write about a film in The New Yorker. Yeah. When you read a review of Bonnie and Clyde, she didn't write a Roger Ebert-length review of Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, where he's like, this is a well-acted movie. It captured my attention. It'll make my 10 best lists. You know, she's writing like a 3,000-word polemic. And there are some films, whether it's for Ringer or Reverse Shot or Cinemascope, where, yeah, I've gotten to write, like, you know, a book chapter-length piece on it. And then sometimes that gets expanded into an actual book chapter. Like when I wrote the Fincher book, that piece on Zodiac, which is one of my favorite things that I wrote for Ringer, the book chapter is really about 80% that material. And yeah. that, by the way, sorry, I was only able to write that long on Zodiac because it's in the context of an anniversary piece. Right. Because right, right. no one in 2007 later. is going to read or write a piece that's about like, Charles Ives and modernist classical music and all the stuff that is a thousand percent what is actually in Zodiac. David Fincher is no dummy. You know, that score and David Shire's score in Zodiac is quoting Charles Ives and the unanswered question all over it. That's intent that goes into the making of a movie. That's not me splooging all over Zodiac. That's in the film. But that's not going to be what people are writing about on first contact. They're going to write about Zodiac is a new movie from the director seven. It's kind of long. I don't know. <laughs> do, do you want to see, do you want to see a long movie this weekend? I give Zodiac, I give three, let's give it three stars. Yeah. You know, 10 years later, 15 years later, writing a book, you can be like, actually astonishing artistic achievement. And here's, here's why. But let's say, Let's say the new Zodiac movie comes out. I mean, Batman's tough because there's so much point of comparison. But Batman say, wants to be the new Batman, by the way. I'm, I'm still under embargo, but I don't know when your, your thing's going to air. It wants to be Zodiac. Yeah. I will say that. This new Batman movie, Paul Dano is basically playing the Zodiac. This is just a coincidence that we've brought these two things up. But sorry, go on. Maybe it isn't. Maybe, maybe you brought them both up for that reason. Yeah. But how much... What do you do walking into the theater or the screening room before you review? Let, you know, let's just take a new film from a director who's got a catalog of 
four or five pictures. You know, it's, there's some history there, but you don't yeah. know exactly what you're getting into. How much work do you do before you watch the film so you are appropriately ready to go? See, the nature of my viewing habits is that in a lot of cases, the work has been done in real time because I've always gone to everything, mm -hmm. right? doesn't mean I see everything. I mean, I'm woefully underviewed in some places. And if someone was like, can you go, you know, can you sit and write something on, uh, you know, Republic serials of the 1930s or 40s? Those are things that I've read about, seen a little bit on, but it's not, you know, it's not like a fish in water for me. But I see a lot of stuff. So I'm watching careers in real time. I have always gone and sought out genres and filmmakers and actors and curiosities from the past so that if they resurface either in their original form or via reference or allusion, I'm kind of aware of them. Mm -hmm. Like for example, new Batman. I have seen Cloverfield and 16 Cloverfield Lane or whatever it was called and both Planet of the Apes movies and the Let the Right In, Let the Right One In remake, all of which yeah. are directed by Matt Reeves. I've seen... Yeah. Uh, the Yards, which is a James Gray movie that he co-wrote. I have not sought those movies out because I'm reviewing Batman. I also have seen Batman Returned when I was 12, which means I had one level of relationship to it. And The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan when I was 27, which means I have a level of relationship to it. And my little five-year-old daughter is now watching the 60s Batman, so I have a different level of relationship to it. And so these things are all folding in and coming into the theater with me with this three-hour uh, you know, in, in a Batman movie. And it's a hard question because someone might be listening to this or you might be ready to ask, you know, so how much of criticism isn't reference? I mean, you know, what about the thing on its own terms? And I think that it's much rarer now that you meet things that exist solely on their own terms than things that are to some extent informed or generated or created out of extant whatever. But man, what exists on its own terms? Everything is archetype and narrative and tropes and structure. And uh, I mean, I, you could actually, instead of this whole podcast, well, I want us to talk for as long as you want. I'm having fun. You could reduce this. Whole <laughs> you could reduce this whole podcast to the single best tweet I've ever seen about film criticism, which is recent, which is, uh, you know, tweets that are sort of structures like, you know, a dialogue, a guy talking. Yeah. yeah. So it says in square brackets, meaning that uh, it's describing the speaker. The tweet is like, guy who's only ever seen the movie The Boss Baby watching another movie. <laughs> and the tweet says, this movie is it's giving the real of, Boss Baby vibes. I've seen this tweet. That <laughs> is honestly the best tweet about film criticism that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, if you, if, because what you just mentioned was you've seen all, you didn't say all of Matt Reeves' catalog, but a lot, a lot of his films that he's worked on. all that are very close, yeah. You didn't even mention Pattinson, really. Like, you didn't mention, what's the what's it called, The Lighthouse. Um, oh, sure, and I've seen all that, too. Yeah, I know you have. And, and do you need to have seen all that stuff to better appreciate Batman? Never mind 700, 900 issues of Detective Comics. No. That, you know, it's like... What is the minimum that you could do? And, you know, if you just wanted to see a film that's on Netflix, it's just a square that's showing to you, you don't know anything else about it. Is, is that the same level of understanding and enjoyment? Or do you, does it take 10 years for you to say, oh, I've been thinking about the score of that, like you said, with Zodiac? But most people, when they're watching stuff, are not bound either by financial in incentive or a guiding sense of purpose to describe their experience. If they describe their experience, they describe it to a partner or to a friend or to a cat, where they think about it themselves. And that's not to say that there's not all kinds of, of you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people can live with and discuss and love movies. You know, families have movies that they pass on sure. within the household or, you know, you tell your friends you got to see this or whatever else. I think everybody goes through a version of the process that we're describing, which is, you know, they, they like romantic comedy. So that's why they watch that square on Netflix, you know, or I used to be a video store clerk in the, in the late nineties, two thousands in Toronto. I loved finding out not just like what people were like and what they thought of the movies they rented, but just like, you know, what are they drawn to? Are they drawn to stars? Are they drawn to box art? You know, are they going to go home and jerk off to what they're watching? I mean, these are all real things, you yeah. know, but in terms of then sharing that experience with others, well, if you're sharing it formally, 
there is some sense now you have of responsibility to yourself, to the work, and to who you're sharing it with. I do not think that the parameters of that responsibility are objective in any way. I don't think you're going to find people who agree on them. And taste, which can draw us to people like that, right? Someone says to me, the 1978 invasion of body snatchers by Philip Kaufman is a bad movie. I will probably say to them, I do not wish you good luck in your life. <laughs> I hope that you are dumb. You're, you're, you're moron. I mean, Objectively, I on its own merit, you would say that because that movie is a standalone piece you consider good. Never mind what you're about to say next, which is the influence it's had on future films. Right. But what I mean is if someone were to say that, they probably wouldn't. Whereas if someone were to say, you know, well, you know what one of my favorite movies is, Body Snatchers, they could have, you know, like uh, children trapped in their basement. I don't know that about them. But they say they like that movie. I'm like, you seem like a good person. <laughs> we, should, we, should, we, should, we should get coffee, you know. What I mean is taste binds us to people instantly because True. we like people. Same with sports teams, you know, same with singers or, or politics, you know. I think that sometimes you can be drawn to taste to the point where analysis and argument either becomes secondary or boringly doesn't come into it. And I find, you know, it always sounds so corny when you say this, but I mean it. And I have friends who are living proof to this. And unfortunately, my very best friend, one of my best friends who passed away a couple of years ago, he was testament to this while he was alive. He's an older critic named Kevin Currier, who was 25 years older than me, he passed away, but he was a great colleague of mine for about 20 years since I was very young. Uh, I love disagreeing with people. Yeah. It's so much more interesting than saying some version of, right? Because when, because you come, both come out of a movie and love something with someone, kind of go, yeah, it's great, right? I mean, sharing that is fun, but persuading and being persuaded, trying to see through somebody's eyes, someone perceptive, someone lucid trying to see through their eyes what they're seeing in a particular film it's not what i see i love that yeah. i honestly do and i don't get argumentative and i don't get nasty i i get interested you know as long as i feel like i'm being heard out to the same level as long as the other person's interested in in me it is a shitty conversation where you listen to someone for an hour and you go, well here's how i see it. like i don't see it that way then you sort of go, well, yeah, fuck off. But, 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 <laughs> well, there's but, no, at that point, there's no give and take. So it's no. not really a conversation. It's, but but give, and take, give and take in this room and beyond that, finding writers who, even if you're not talking to them, make you test your responses. You know, this is not, you want to talk about rabbit holes. This is like an 8 million mile rabbit hole. I don't know if you're familiar with Armin White. You know, everyone becomes kind of familiar with Armin these days because of the way the Internet works. But yeah. he's an iconoclastic film critic for a long time. I, re I reviewed a book of his and actually he, he interacted with me on Twitter with 20 years ago. I never thought would happen because I mostly read Armin White because I thought that he was awful. And I still think he's kind of awful. But he's also um, he is honest as I can hear about Armin. I mean, he's a weird crypto crypto reactionary uh, you know, Trumpy kind of guy, but he understands film history, vocabulary, yeah. aesthetics, ideology. He doesn't fall for hype. He hates a lot of the filmmakers who I love. And I read him all the time, all the time, because it, I am testing my taste against someone smart. And you're, you're able to separate their understanding of film from what you may think about other aspects of their life. Or sure. Or, 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 I, or just, you know, it's just interesting to see how in a profession that's largely left liberal and largely progressive these days, what, whether that means a frigging thing or not. Right. In terms of what, how you evaluate art or whether the political valence of art matters. I'm increasingly tired of this idea that art or artists need to tow you know, an acceptable, uh, 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 an acceptable line because acceptable shades into benign and benign shades into innocuous so easily. This is not me arguing for Lenny Riefenstahl, nor am I signing any <laughs> petitions for Roman Polanski, but I am saying that a Marvel movie that lines up 15 female superheroes in a row to offset the fact that they collaborate with the U.S. military on every movie, I don't buy it. Yeah. You know, I don't buy that surface diversity, surface tolerance stuff. 
So Armin, for instance, is a critic who his his bullshit detector is is anything that he think you know, thinks you know smells of of fake fake leftism or fake liberalism. And actually, it's a good thing to root out and seek out in movies because movies are 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 lousy with it these days. You know, and at the end of the day, I'm deeply disturbed sometimes by the conclusions he draws about certain uh, about about certain movies. But I like that I can be kind of disturbed by them, but recognize that they have a certain cogence or coherence. It just doesn't have to be my cogence or my coherence. No direct, no filmmaker, for instance, has called out the kind of quasi-fascistic imagery in David Fincher's work the way that Armin has, uh, and Armin signaled how incredibly condescending the racial politics of Benjamin Button are. And he's right. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, he doesn't write about a director like Fincher and says, you know, the guy's a, you know, a, you know, controlling and, and precise and technically proficient. And that's the end of the conversation. He said, okay, so the guy is all of those things. What's actually in the movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't see what's in the movies quite the same way that he does, but I appreciate that he's using it as a jumping off point as opposed to an end point. Cause you know, tourist criticism, which for your listeners mean, you know, really burrowing into a particular director or burrowing into films through a particular director. I think people too often, will just use the fact that there's a discernible style as just all they want to say. Like, I found it. There it is. Yeah. As opposed to saying something about it. And, right. And what does that mean? Or how does, does it, it move the, propel the story? Or how do, what is it or, or connected what does it, to? Yeah. What, what does it mean in the world? You know, yeah. what, what is it putting out there in the world beside a signature? And also, what's the difference between a signature and a brand? But again, this very digressive set of, of, of ideas. But it that does make me think that that externality of of that person's unique point of view, you know, in comparison to most, um, like you said, uh, the standard film critic or the media critic even is, is a liberal lefty. This person has a definitely starting from a different point of view than most. And that's adding color. It's adding texture to their review, whether, whether that makes it to the page or not, on some level, it's a prism that the film gets projected through. Well, I mean, you look at the evolution of film criticism. It was not an expert vocation because people are not expert in film vocabulary for a while. There has to be a film academy, film studies for people to come out of it, rightly or not, thinking like, you know, I know my shit. So there was a lot of film criticism that was just, you know, theater critics or there's people who were on various staffs, you know, describing the movies they saw. And there was a really early emphasis on stars and star culture. And there was almost no line sometimes between, you know, the description of movies and the description of the celebrity culture around them. And then you have, you know, a real kind of literary style of film criticism that was all about the plots. And then you would have very moralistic kind of film criticism, which is what is this telling us about our world? And does it honor Christ Jesus or, you know, president (laughs) or whatever? Or whatever the thing is I want to keep center. Yeah, very much so. You know, and then you start breaking into that, those different evaluations of authorship that had always been part of literary criticism. Like, you know, this author has something to say or, or this painter is trying to express something. And then again, you start going into film criticism that's more centered on identity political stuff or on cultural theoretical stuff, or you start getting into film criticism that's almost a form of, uh, you know, almost a form of diary writing or almost a form of personal expression and personal essays prompted by film writing. And then in the 80s, you got Roger Ebert once again, repopularizing the plot summary plus opinion. And Ebert, by the way, when you read a book like The Great Movies, which is a collection of his, his you know, he's a terrific writer sometimes. Absolutely. With, you can't, it's not even a question of saying it with respect, but a lot of the time he wasn't. Or a lot of the time, the kind of criticism that he helped to popularize, which is, you know, this is just how I feel. You know, I just kind of like this. And, you know, uh, this David Lynch movie makes me uncomfortable. So it's not good. Or this, this famous line he has, you know, machines are movies are machines for generating empathy. That's a really brilliant formulation, except when it's totally pointless and doesn't matter. Right. doesn't add anything to the conversation. Well, or, or, or said movie isn't a machine for generating empathy. Maybe this movie, uh, 
maybe it has not. some other purpose that on the part of the people who made it. Yeah, some other purpose on the part of the people who make it, or you know, if it fails on that level, you've got to, you know, you 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 got to evaluate it through a different lens. Uh, um, you know, I, but, but again, that's that idea of to, totalizing maxims or, or or totalizing descriptions of something never really work. So, so in a way, when you say the worst of his writing, when you, the way you just described it is almost when he does take a single, you know. 100 minute encapsulation. I'm in the seat. I'm watching this film. Here's my thought on just what I just observed and nothing else. You know, this film made me uncomfortable. Thumbs down. I was exhilarated. It was well put together. Thumbs up. That's what happens almost when you don't give any context, when you don't bring any other external thought or talk about references or talk about the deeper meaning of it. You know, don't you feel like that? That's what makes it a shallow review. But I mean, yeah. But then that sure. I mean, I'm agreeing with everything you said. But it, it, I'm imagining 15 different versions of the hypothetical review you gave. There's the hypothetical review where that's all they say, and I read it and I go, "That's nice." Right. There's, there's, there's a there's a version of that exact review written by a reviewer who I really like or a critic I really like, and I sort of go, "Huh." There's almost as if they're paring away to the essentials of their response. Maybe this is what's but, um, there's also probably people who are going to seed phrases and ideas like that in between other stuff. And maybe there's also a hypothetical reviewer who says none of what you just said spends a lot of time sounding to your listenership. Like I sometimes sound in between the bits where I'm being self-deprecating and funny, but maybe they really are erecting a web of illusions and, and references and signifiers around while they're writing, and there's you know someone reads it and they go, I don't know what they thought of that movie, right? And and because I don't know what they thought about it or if they liked it or how it made them feel, I, I don't really care. And these references are all lost on me. So this is a very unsuccessful film review that you've that 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 that, that, that you've written. I've had that experience with uh, music review as well. If you go to read something on Pitchfork, for example, and yep. they say, well, it's they'll reference 20 things you've never heard, never heard of. You could go track all those things down with Spotify. It's really easy and just say, here it is. And with Netflix or your collection of criterion or whatever else, you could go watch all the references in the review. But now all of a sudden it's like a 12 hour time investment just to decide if the person thought it was a good or bad film. As someone who's dabbled in music writing, I think one difference is taste and personal coolness, I think, are more imbricated in the history of music writing, in the models for, for, for music writing. Mm. And because with music, the narratives are more behind the music. You're really, to some extent, writing about narratives of different scenes and individuals. You're not, you can't, you can't say in an album review, well, the story doesn't make sense. I mean, I guess you can write a concept <laughs> album with you and say the story doesn't make sense. But I mean, you know, the way that let's say narrative functions in music is harder, I think, to just kind of junkily synopsize. You know, with a movie, you can always fall back on this idea of synopsis. You know, there's a movie about this guy. He gets up one morning and he he turned into a fly for some reason. That's weird. I mean, <laughs> you know, same with a book review. I mean, with a with a music review, you're deep into subjectivity, which is I like this or I don't. I think that music history and film history and music authorship and film authorship, they intersect in a lot of places, but I think music in some ways is both more immediate to write about and maybe you could be better at it without the history, but also it's kind of harder to write about because what are you describing? You're describing the sound of instruments, you're describing the sound of a voice here. I mean, it's kind of like reviewing poetry, you know? Either the you know what the singer is saying really speaks to you, or or maybe, or maybe it doesn't. But um, I think music writing is very hard. And I will say the worst music criticism would, but like the worst music criticism is probably the stuff that makes me come closer to blowing my brains out than the worst film criticism. <laughs> the depths are lower for that. The worst, the worst music criticism is truly abject. Well, it's a lot of showing off. It's a lot of like, I look what I know. Yeah. It's a lot of showing off or it's 
people who, again, that question of taste we're talking about, I'm just like, don't come in my house, you know, but that's just, that's just me. Yeah. Do you, as you were explaining music criticism and you were talking about, you mentioned cool, one name came to mind in the film world. I'm sorry to say this to you, but you know, when I saw Pulp Fiction, sure. I didn't know anything about film. I was 20 or 19 or whatever I was. And I went to see that in a the theater. I just bought a ticket and showed up and sat down and watched it. And I liked it. But whatever it is, 25 years later, I look at it and now I know all the influences. I know not all of them. I know some of them. I've seen some of the films that he pulled from. I've seen, you know, what he was drawing from. And it lets me at least go back and watch that again and have a different experience. It's like, I say, Oh, I see what he's doing here. Or, you know, but he got by, he kind of slid into his place in culture just from being cool. Nobody knew what he was <laughs> drawing from. I think very, I, mean, I, wrote, I wrote about this a couple of years for the ringer about how not everyone who came to Tarantino came to him as a teenager, but it sure helped if you did. Yeah. When you're a teenager, you don't know anything. Your guard is down. You're like, oh, your that's, guard, you, that's cool thing. Your, your guard is down and you can be grateful for the little window that feels like being opened up on all these old cool things. Instead of having grown up with that original frame of reference that he had, or even being older than him, because he's a pretty young, callow guy when he breaks through. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Armin is a, he always hated Tarantino because he thought Tarantino was getting the praise Godard deserved it's just Godard didn't have ears being sliced off and you know uh you know the the, the that that kind of incredibly trashy low-life violence that Tarantino I mean but my my friend Kevin I mentioned passed away he had a great line he said Godard who Tarantino obviously loves you know and Tarantino, Tarantino loves Pauline Kale too and Pauline Kale loved Godard <laughs> uh he said Godard turned viewers into critics my friend Kevin said Hmm. And Tarantino turns critics into fanboys. And so what he meant, what he meant by that was twofold, which is that, you know, with Godard, he's making movies that are about what's in the world. And he's kind of making you sit up and pay attention to what's in his movies and see how this connects to some larger reality. But Tarantino, all that big frame of reference that your podcast is sort of about or that this episode is about, again, building thoughts or building a, a thought matrix and, and what you know about a medium. Tarantino is using it to get you to not ask questions. He's using it to get you to feel good about yourself because you go, I know what that is. I know what that is. I know what that is. And in a way... Tarantino arrived before being a film nerd was particularly cool. Yeah. The revenge of the nerds subtext to filmmakers like Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Yes. And to an extent, a lot of the wonderful low budget directors who get conscripted into superhero movies like Peter Jackson and, and Sam Raimi, those guys are great. But there's a vengeful nerd quality to all of it, too, which is that, you know, that which is obscure and that which is unknown and that which is kind of uncool and cult suddenly exists at the middle of the culture in a way that makes you desirable and attractive. You know, I always thought Tarantino's self-image has never been more transparent than the scene in Death Proof, where he's sitting at the bar, he himself, surrounded by all these, like, unfathomably fucking hot women listening to him talk about some stupid TV bullshit. And I'm like, that's not fantasy. You made that happen for yourself. Yeah. You know? It you, was you, fantasy you on the page, but that's like kind of what he's built for himself. Yeah. Because right. that's what he's built. And he's helped to build a culture where that, that, that revenge of the nerd narrative has happened and superhero movies are now the most streamlined, branded, corporatized version of that. And he still is a better artist than every superhero movie director put together because he's an artist and because his, his version of this never involved becoming benign. You know, he always has those, those edges sticking out. Yes, he does. But he's, but he's also a herald of the dangers of postmodernism, which is that it makes everything seem weightless. It puts everything in quotes. It becomes a denial of reality. The only history that's dealt with is the history of cinema itself. And uh, you also people get fooled into thinking that they're watching things being invented for the first time, you know, as opposed to being duly, duly replicated. 
Yeah, unless you I know, go and do that that extra. Yep. But there's yeah, a brilliant attention. book. There's a brilliant book on one of Tarantino's favorite filmmakers, one of my favorite filmmakers too. There's a brilliant book on Brian De Palma by yeah. a guy named Chris Dumas. And he, on some level, you would want to cross the street to avoid him because he's like a De Palma nut. And like any tourist nut, you sometimes these people are just unreasonably passionate. But he makes a great argument, which again is at the core of what this episode is about. He says, so Brian De Palma's got Hitchcock references in his movies. Everyone knows that. There was even a Saturday Night Live sketch about it. SNL doesn't do those kinds of directors. You know, if SNL is going to do a parody of De Palma, then De Palma's got to be pretty famous. It's got to be pretty famous. And it's got to be pretty famous for, for doing something that anybody could recognize. As yeah. So, 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 so yeah, so this is the line on De Palma. Now what Dumas says is that De Palma's Hitchcock references, not only are they not meant to fool anybody into, into, into thinking that this is original, he says they're bracketed off and designed in such a way, they so call attention to what they are. It's basically him saying, this has been done. I cannot do this <laughs> myself. He, he doffs his cap. Hitchcock, not just doffing his cap, but then saying, if it's been done before, let's look at how I am doing it differently. Let us take it as read that the oh. visual vocabulary or the dramatic vocabulary of Alfred Hitchcock is not just important to me, it's important to everyone because it's not just me recognizing it. I'm not stealing some obscure playwright and passing it off. You all recognize it. Yeah. So I'm not fucking fooling anybody. Yeah, and I'm not but trying. What, and I'm not trying to. What am I doing with it? And not only what am I doing with it in terms of just like, you know, parodying Hitchcock or, or copying Hitchcock. He's like, Hitchcock is the basic vocabulary of movie making. So, you know. I'm 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 cutting out the middleman here. I'm 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 bringing him up to play with him, and I think that that's what unites a guy like De Palma with when Gus Van Sant remade Psycho. When that's a movie that distills a lot of what you're asking to. No one gives a shit about the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho, and because they should it's because it's shot for shot, shot for shot, and it's a failure. It was a commercial failure, a critical failure. He shouldn't have done it, probably. But the impulse to do it, especially coming off of Goodwill Hunting, which actually sucks. And I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to think that Gus Van Sant is a good enough filmmaker that he knows that, that that movie sucks. I'm sure he is happy Robin Williams won an Oscar for it. I'm sure they all enjoyed partying with Harvey Weinstein after and all that. But, uh, you know, the Psycho remake is actually asking some of these questions about its audience. It's saying, what, what? is psycho if you haven't seen it before but you've seen it and i know you've seen it if you haven't seen it you've seen it by osmosis if you haven't seen it by osmosis you've seen the parody you've seen the ripoff so what does it mean to play the notes but not the music or what does it mean to play the notes to music that everybody already knows yeah. that that is where i think you start seeing film directors doing something interesting that requires a kind of critical intervention or requires a kind of critical analysis. Because to just say, I saw a remake of Psycho, it sucked. It wasn't as good as the first one. Well, no shit. Yeah. And that goes all the way back to what you said about I'm thinking of ending things. He, yeah. you know, he deliberately puts in paragraphs of quotes of a review that he has this great actor reading and she's yeah. reading it as if it's her own voice. You know, it's the same yeah. thing. No, it, 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 it is. And these are filmmakers who I think play with these ideas of knowledge and familiarity and, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, film literacy and whatever else. But Tarantino is different, I guess. I mean, De Palma is interesting because the more he does that, the less people used to see his movies. And then when he goes big and broad, like The Untouchables or, or Scarface, he makes a big hit. Right. But, but, but Tarantino is the weird case of, yeah, I've said this on other podcasts, but it's true. Well, watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I like, by the way, I think it's one of his better, his, his best movies. I'm watching this going... I'm not surprised by what this is because I have seen a Tarantino movie before and he's fundamentally static. He doesn't change. Right. Why does everyone want to see this? This is a movie about people sitting around talking about a 60s TV Western. I do not think people actually give a shit. I know he gives a shit. Why are people seeing this? I mean, there's a simple answer, which is it's very engaging. 
and it's very good. But do people really care? He has he he should be a niche guy who has a small audience, like so many of those other '90s indie directors ended up having. Yeah. You know? and instead he gets 130 million bucks and Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt to make a movie a good portion of the screen time is people talking about fucking these TV westerns. Bullet. Yeah. He has he has broken through to the point where I don't think people are interested in what he's interested in. They're interested that he's interested in anything. And they will go to his movies regardless. And I thought Hateful Eight was almost as if he was trying to say, how far can you follow me? Yeah, please stop watching my films. Stop watching my films or like, what can I do? Here's a three-hour movie in which nothing happens. The one big violent scene is a flashback that we did not need to see because we already know everybody's dead. Yeah. And uh, everybody in this movie is a gigantic asshole. Yeah, there's no redeemable characters. There's no redeemable characters and just so boring. But by the way, I did just rewatch it. So he's doing I something. I think he's hugely, hugely rewatching the movie. <laughs> and because Tarantino has long since passed the test of being a disgustable and notable film artist, you've got to see it. And then you've got to find something to say about it other than that it's boring. Yeah, Even though I, my conclusion with The Hateful Eight is that it's boring. That's not enough to say yeah, that. No. Adam, thank you so much for making oh, time for me. This is a... Um, as a film fan, this was a fun chat, but interesting to hear your point of view on where you pull in reference and what, how far is enough to know. Um, where can people find you online, Adam? You can read me in The Ringer. You can read me in Cinemascope, which is a Canadian film magazine. And my Twitter account is Bro From Another. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm in Toronto. I'm easy to find. And I will be linking to... Uh, your new book, your uh, David Fincher book in yeah. the show notes as well. So congrats oh, thank on that. You. Yeah, you know, the, those Abrams books on uh, Fincher and, and Anderson and, and, and the Coens were all really fun to read. And they 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 both do and don't uh, follow typical tourist models of analysis. I, I At the end of the day, I hope that they don't read like cheerleading for those filmmakers. I mean, there's a lot of things about those directors I like but I'm trying to do something more than sort of just simply be like, they're pretty good. Uh, you <laughs> I, can know. Tell, I can tell from as much as I've read of yours and uh, this conversation that there's a, there's a lot there. Hope, hope, hope. And so, so thank you. So thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks Adam. Great talking to you. Cheers, man. Strategy Inside Everything is produced by me, Adam Kierno. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps. For more information about me, Adam Kierno, you can go to adampierno.com. There's information about my books, my speaking, and my strategy work. Have an idea for a guest? Send it my way. Just go to adampierno.com and you'll find a form there that'll help you connect. Thanks for listening. <laughs>